The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, Glory, hey, it's Dudley. Good to be back with you again this month. We're going to be talking about a very, very important and very apropos subject. And uh, so get, get your ears in a listening position and your heart in an open position. I do want to recommend some things to you that's coming up. I want you to, to make you aware of the uh, the treasure hunt weekend that's coming up in September for the ladies. These, this is a woman's retreat out at Tesoro Escondido. Fabulous facility, fabulous program, wonderful time. The ladies always have a blast as they apply the gospel to to their lives and to their mission and to their calling. I recommend to all you ladies who are listening Come and bring a friend, uh, and you'll meet some new friends. It'll be a wonderful, wonderful time. You can go on the website, the app, or you can call the office. But uh, get registered for that. Bring some people from your church or small group, whatever. And then in October, we'll be having the Beyond Happiness Couples Retreat, Marriage Retreat. It's about marriage, but it's about the marriage as the gospel applies to it. So it's not a marriage retreat like most of us have been to, where there's techniques and learning how to fight and learning how to communicate and all that, though that's a part of it, it is what what does the gospel mean to your marriage? How do you actually live out the good news in a marriage? What's its purpose? How do we do that? So uh, it is beyond happiness. You know, if you got married to get happy, you've probably been disappointed at some times. But if if you're married, you can be happy, but it is a byproduct of some other things. So... Get that on your schedule, register for it. See, I think it was last year we had several couples who were going to get married. And they came and uh, they said it was wonderful premarital counseling for them. Come and be a part of that. Hey, I wanted to, based on the subject we're going to be talking about today and for this month, I wanted to remind you of some stuff I did uh, some time ago where I did a study through Colossians. And we call the series Grace Applied, uh, which goes along with what I was just saying. H- how do you apply grace? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and liberates us to live in the joy of the Lord. So how do, how do you apply grace to those practical aspects of your life? Uh, if you don't understand the nature of grace, the gospel, then you can't apply it. You'll be always trying to do to leverage God, to do uh, formulas, to do things to get God blessings or try to make things happier, to try to improve yourself or whatever. But if you do understand grace, you can apply it to your life. So there you go. Just want to thank you for praying for us this summer as we've gone through uh, leadership expedition and all the things we do for the next generation. For those of you who uh, contributed scholarships to the to the guys and whatever, thank you. For those of you who haven't yet invested with us this year, please do. Please uh, just ask the Father what uh, investment you should and could make to Kerygma Ventures because we need your help and we need to get this gospel that we believe in, this Kerygma, uh, into as many lives as possible. Please consider, consider seriously uh, giving a gift making investment, and even consider doing it on a, uh, a monthly basis. You can go on the app and find out how to do that. Or if you need personal attention, just call the office and, and get that. 
Okay, the, I want to talk to you about something that's going on right now that's scary. It's really scary in our society, and it is the incivility, the, the, the lack of civility, the lack of being able to discuss things we disagree over, and the hatred and the personal hatred that's come, coming about. Uh, I'm doing this at a week where Sarah Huckabee, who represents the Trump administration to the press and whatever, was asked by the owner of the restaurant to leave because she didn't agree, agree with her politically. We have Representative Maxine Waters in California encouraging her constituents to every time they see somebody in the administration to make a big deal of it and, and to tell them they're not wanted, not welcome, or whatever. Uh, and, and a lot of stuff uh, in between. And so there's there's a lot of uh, animosity, uh, a kind the kind of animosity that precedes a civil war type thing. And I'm, I'm not predicting uh, another civil war, but you can have civil wars at different levels. Uh, it can be a religious civil war, it can be a societal civil war, it can be a political civil war. But eventually it winds up in hostility and it winds up in people getting hurt and killed. And uh, that is not something that we want. So there's lots of debate today about, okay, where did this start? Where did it come from? Uh, there are those who are saying, well, you know, remember back in the uh, political uh, campaigns when uh, Trump made things personal, he went after people. And so, you know, that's where it started. And others going, well, it was back way before then. And it's back with Obama, and others like, oh no, it goes all the way back to, you know, to Roosevelt, and you know, back to where. Well, I can tell you where it went back to, and all of those are very short terms. It, it goes all the way back to a first family, but it's not the first family that's in the White House at any time. It is the first family that included Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve, and it came about that they uh, brought an offering to the Lord. Let me just read it, okay? And then uh, I can tell it as, as we read it. This is found in Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And it wasn't long before Cain enticed his brother Abel to go into the field. And while he was there, he murdered him. And then there was the curse on Cain and so this started, this, it's, in, uh, it's significant that this is at the very beginning of the story, the mega story that explains life. It, it starts with God, a creator God who's loving and creates out of love to have a people 
who can enjoy him as much as he enjoys himself. And so he creates these people by creating Adam and Eve. And the very first kids they have, oh, well, you know the story of Adam and Eve. They also had a choice to make, and they chose to doubt the goodness of God. They chose to listen to a tempter who said they were being treated unfairly and that God was withholding things from them and that he wouldn't let them have his omnipotence, his omnipresence and his omniscience and that that was a, an unfair thing, that they were creatures rather than the creator. And so they fell for this and, uh, and sin came into the race and began to infect it. And so we see this outgrowth of sin's affectation in Cain. Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord and Abel's offering is accepted. He brought the first fruit, uh, the first fruit of his flock and the fat portion. So he brought the first and the best. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say if it was the first or the best or whatever. It just says that God doesn't, didn't accept his offering. And it wasn't so much the technicality of the offering, though that may have had something to do with it. It was the heart of, of Cain. He evidently didn't have the right heart. Had he had the right heart, God would have accepted him. And so Cain maybe is the first one to believe that you can do religious activity to get God's acceptance and found that it doesn't work. There are a lot of people who tried that, you know. The landscape is filled with people who've been hurt by the church. They, at some point, tried what they thought was God. They tried the church formula, as they interpret it, and it didn't work out. And they will say, I was hurt by the church. The church is hypocritical. That Therefore, they're angry. I, uh, in the part of the world that I live in, I very seldom talk to an unbeliever or whatever that is away from the church that doesn't report back that the reason they are is because at some point they feel like the church let them down. So in many of these cases, if not all, many of these cases, the issue is when you try to do religious activity, believing that that is what God wants, whether it's an offering you bring or something you do, if you think that's what God wants and he doesn't want a grateful heart recognizing him to be the source of everything, if, if you think that's true, then you are going to be disillusioned and hurt. So Cain brings an offering and it's not acceptable to the Lord. So he's not accepted. The uh, offering is not accepted. So he has uh, his countenance falls. He, uh, he's down. He, he's downcast. It, it's dangerous to be downcast. You know, we, uh, we, we, we tend to overlook it and think, well, somebody's downcast, uh, you know, disillusioned, depressed, whatever. And I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm talking about a countenance that has concluded that I've been treated unfairly. There's something, life is unfair to me. I'm not getting what other people get. What God in his choices or in his sovereignty has done is not fair on my part. And so they're that, that kind of downcast demeanor. So it, it's a dangerous thing. So, so Cain 
is downcast, but God has not totally rejected him. God still talks to him and says to Cain, you know, why, why are you downcast? You know, if you do what's right, you will be accepted. If you don't, you need to understand this. Not only will you be downcast, sin is crouching at the door. And sin here is personified. It's not just a, an act on your part. It is a power. It is a master. It is someone who will come in and and possess you. It will take over you. It will it will put boundaries on your thinking. It'll paralyze you. It, 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 it will get you into its deceptive way of thinking. And when that happens, then it leads to destruction. And, and so uh, the choice when you're downcast is a big choice because if you choose to handle it right, if you choose to confront it and deal with it, then, okay, you, you've conquered. You've done what man has, has been designed to do. God put us here to rule under his authority to rule. You've done it. Uh, it was what Adam could have done in the garden when, when Eve was accosted by the serpent. He could have taken authority over the serpent. He had that authority. He didn't. And now Cain is faced with the same issue. Are you going to deal with this, this personality, this persona of evil, this serpent, the devil himself, are you going to deal with it or are you going to let it have, have its sway in your life? And if, if you do, then there's going to be some dire consequences. So the uh, rejection, the feeling of rejection, being rejected leads to dejection. That is the feeling of shame. I am not, I'm not valuable. The fact that that I'm not being treated like Abel is being treated or other people are being treated means that there's something wrong with me and we, can, we can't handle that. It's, it's like well, we start feeling worthless and, and when you start feeling worth, worthless because of this shame, then, then you blame. You blame God. He's not fair. You blame people, Abel. Abel has stuff that I want and I don't have. He has the acceptance of God. He has the smile of God. He, he, he has what I want and don't have. And, and so then there's the, the deception of the evil one of, well, the way you get what he has is by killing him. And then you can have what he has. You get, you eliminate him and therefore you can equalize things. So, so there we have the whole the whole murder thing, the whole envy thing, the whole bitterness thing. So, so this enters into Cain because he chose not to accept where he was, to accept responsibility for what he had done and what was in his heart and to deal with it. Instead of doing that, he let sin began to whisper in his ear that he was a victim, a victim. A victim is one who's oppressed by others. There is an oppressor. Once you entertain victimization, then you have automatically identified that there is a, an oppressor somewhere. Okay, who is it? Was it your parents? Is it God who designed this whole thing and he, he's in charge of the whole deal? So your, your 
God is the oppressor. If so, you're angry at God. What, what if somebody says it's, uh, it's another race? Another race is your oppressor. And as long as that race is in existence, it's going to dominate you. What if it's a socioeconomic group? It's a race or, or association. It's the Jews. It's the rich people. It's the elite. It's the people. It's the owners. It's, it's the people who own land and, and whatever. They're, they're the ones. You're vulnerable to every kind of victimization once you entertain the idea that you are a victim that, that some, someone has taken advantage of you and now you are suffering because of someone else's oppression. And when that ha happens, then you are very vulnerable to someone who says, okay, let's get it back. Let's get back our dignity. Let's get back our, our equality. Uh, we demand that everybody share everything they have with us. And so, but really that won't satisfy at all either. And so nothing really satisfies until you eliminate the oppressor. You can see the psychological mechanisms working here as, okay, then I've got to eliminate the oppressor. That, that means that if you are a part of this oppressive group, then you're the enemy. You're no longer a person with whom I I interact. You're no longer a contributor to my life. You're no longer a person created in the image of God with a dignity and a person uh, and a reason for living. You are my enemy. So I treat you as an enemy. So can we discuss policy? No, you're already on the wrong group. So, so we become vulnerable to people who then want to give us our identity as a subset of an oppressed group. You are a woman, you are a black woman or an Indian, American Indian woman, or you are a single, or you are one of the, one of the minorities today is, would, would be where I am. You're a, uh, an old white guy, uh, middle class, bald headed, I mean, I got all kinds of deficits around. It's like, I, I'm impressed. You know, nobody wants to take pictures with an old, old bald-headed guy. And especially if he's, if he's white and he's, he's in middle class and he's gone to college and he's, you know, whatever. It's like, they don't even mess with him. He's the oppressor class. And so, so one, once we're relegated to getting our identity from the group we're in, and we that group feels like it's been uh, oppressed and it's a victim, then the main thing is what can this group do to gain, to get, to get the upper hand? Do, do you understand, if you've studied history much, you know what we're describing here is we're describing in, in the mega picture, Marxism or socialism. It, it, it's the idea that, that life is about the conflict between the oppressor and the victims, and that there are these cycles. And finally, the victims rise up and they get enough power, enough strength to overthrow the oppressors, and then they are in charge. And then later, somebody else feels victimized and they'll rise up. And, and so life is about revolution and life is about oppression and deciding who's the oppressor and who's the oppressee. Well, let me just say this. 
socialism, Marxism, Hegelianism, all of those things wind up killing millions of people, whether it's under Hitler or, or Marx or Stalin or Mao Zedong or wherever this, wherever this mentality gets in the society and the society buys into it, it always ends up in destruction. And so it is, it is not something good for a culture. It's not something good for, for a society. This kind of thing that Cain, this Cain's folly thing is not going to do well anywhere. And of course, it doesn't do well with us personally. What does it do to the individual who accepts victimization, who focuses on what, what, unfair thing has happened to me, what unjust thing has happened to me, and then focuses on trying to identify who the oppressor is in that situation. What does it do to you? Well, first of all, you are you feel you feel less than, you feel worthless. Therefore if you feel worthless, you begin to feel meaning meaningless. If you feel meaningless, then you have to deal with thoughts of suicide and uh, because life Life doesn't really mean anything. We're just here. We're just just taking up space. And, and if you're not really happy with what you are going through, if it's not really fun, then, you know, die. Uh, so, so we have to deal with those, those thoughts and those, those tendencies. And, and then it paralyzes us. It paralyzes you because now you become so focused on your oppressor and getting what's due to you. You're so paralyzed, you can't think in terms of how would I use my gifts and my insights and my talents and my distinctiveness, how can I use that to bless all of mankind? We don't want to bless all of mankind. We don't want to bless those who have oppressed us. And if you're in a pretty small minority group, that means you only want to bless a real small group. You know, it's like, you know, just me and you and us four and no more type thing. And, and, and so you don't, want to, you don't want to find out new inventions. You don't want to be industrious. You don't, you don't want to do all that. You're paralyzed because you're so focused on what's been done wrong to me and how can I get even and how, not even, but above. How can I get where I can do some oppressing? So it paralyzes and, and it brings, oh, I tell you another thing it does. It makes you vulnerable, really vulnerable to angry leaders who are pushing this whole thing and saying, you know, who are identifying with, with the anger that you're feeling and, and, they're, and they're saying, if you'll follow us, we can, we'll get in charge. And, and so then you become destructive, destructive of other people's property, destructive of, of other people. So there's a murder spirit and certainly disrespecting of all cultural structures that you may have interpreted to have let you down somewhere. The church, the home, the government. So you become disrespectful and you become an anarchist. It's like all of those things are wrong. You can't trust any of them. You can't trust any structure that mankind has come up with because it was designed to oppress us and I'm gonna throw off all oppression. And what that does is, is it, it throws you out into the middle of the ocean, so to speak, and says to you, okay, you're free now, but nobody will tell you what direction to swim and nobody gives you the energy to swim. 
So it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty uh, devastating thing. One of the things I, I looked to my notes there because I, I want to remember to say this. One of the great lies of the oppressor, the real oppressor, the devil, is that he's always pointing to the oppressor and saying, hey, it was that person, it was Abel, it was God, it was the church, it was the family, it was, it was white Americans, or it was uh, dominant uh, blacks in Africa, or it was the elites, or it was whatever. He's always pointing somebody else and, and getting your focus on the oppressor. The irony is the oppressor is that lie, is the devil himself. He's the oppressor. He is the one who is shutting you down, shutting you down to nothing but anger and fear and hostility and bitterness. And so you're, you're whining about life rather than embracing life and enjoying it. Well, we could talk a lot about that whole, that whole thing. So let, let's talk about the solution, okay? Ready for some good news? So, so how, how, do we, how do we confront? How do we confront the evil? How do we, how do we deal with it when we are actually really feeling dejected? We, we have been rejected because we've sinned. And so, so we, we have violated God's order and we violated God. We've shaken our fists in God's face and said, I want to be God like Adam and Eve. Like we, we're a little bit angry, God, that you're retaining for yourself your your all-knowingness and your ability to be everywhere at one time and and your ultimate power over everything. We're a little we're a little angry that you didn't give that to us. And so what are we gonna do with that? What are we gonna do with the, the anger? And we have bought into the victimization. It's not my fault. I mean we started that when we were kids, you know, it's not my fault. He started it. I mean and so you know every fight goes back to who started this whole deal. Oh, you started it. Well, we started a lot of it ourselves. And uh, so what did God do? God in his mercy said, I'm not going to leave people being victims of this sin that took over in Cain's situation and obviously began to spread through all of humanity because by the time of Noah, this whole thing that Cain had yielded to had become so part of society that society was killing itself and destroying everything. God said, I'll start over. So he chose, chose Noah and his family and showed them grace and Noah got to start over, but it was still there. It was still in the heart of men. And so it's not long before mankind is trying to build a tower to God. Everybody wants that Godness. We want to be omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, still a little bit angry that God hasn't given us his, his non-transferable characteristics. We're unwilling to be creatures. We want to be creator. We're unwilling to be the reflectors. We want to be the source of the light. And so they're building a tower to Babel and God confuses the language and whatever. And so, so on it goes and society continues to reflect this anytime a group begins to feel victimized, then they become dangerous. And it was true of Israel. God chose the descendants of Abraham. Now listen to me carefully. He chose the descendants of Abraham. They become Israel. 
And then Israel begins to define themselves in terms of an elite group defined by bloodline and defined by the fact that they that God had been gracious to them and given them the law. And so they began to began to display a sense of superiority. Nobody is as, as good as we are. And so the anger at the other nations saying, you know, that's not fair. And so they saw Israel as the oppressor. So they began to trying to destroy Israel. And so we have all the wars in the Old Testament between the nations and Israel, whatever. And so we see this whole thing, this victimization thing playing out. So finally, God starts over, if you will. There's a second chance. There's another one who comes. And he takes the rejection. His name is Jesus, of course. He is the God-man. He is the ultimate human. He is Adam's fulfillment. He is Israel's fulfillment. But as Adam's fulfillment, he faces the tempter who basically says to him, why don't you, why don't you take the privilege and you can oppress, you can rule over everything. But Jesus comes in our stead and he becomes sin. He takes on himself the rejection that comes on, that has come on all of us. And that rejection is condemned on the cross. And instead of retaliating, retaliating against those who were accusing him falsely, those who were lying about him, those who misunderstood him, those who identified him incorrectly, Instead of retaliating against them, he said, not a word, not a word. And he gave himself as a sin offering. Now, one of the things that Bible scholars will tell you is that Abel brought a true sin offering. He brought a blood sacrifice. It was the first, it was the best, and it, was, it, it depicted sac uh, sacrifice. Cain brought what later became a thank offering. He bring grain as a thank offering to God for making the ground fertile and making the crops grow. And so you bring him that. It's a, it's a thank offering. Now, the Bible doesn't say in Genesis that one, one was better than the other. The, the obvious issue in the book of Genesis is the heart of Cain, not the nature of the offering. But the nature of the offering will, will reflect the, the nature of the heart. So he brought a, a thank offering. Well, when Jesus died, he offered himself as a sin offering. And as he did that, he took the rejection and he absorbed that and he refused to retaliate and he defeated the oppressor through death. He took away the oppressor's threat, which is death. He took away the, uh, the oppressor's tool of accusation because he now reveals truth. And so he made it possible for there to be a new race of people who would come into Christ and be known as the in Christ people. And these in Christ people 
believers, those who have been born of the Spirit, the people of Christ, those who trust Him as their Savior, as their offering. And, and as Jesus has made as the offering, it means we don't have to make any more. So when they have trusted him, they become in Christ people. In the in Christ people, sin has been dealt with, has been confronted. The liar has been exposed. All of his accusations about us and our worth have been dispelled because our worth was determined by what God paid for us and he paid himself. He paid it, he sent his son. And so God says, you're, you're worth that. And God says, you're my son. And God says, you're my reflector of light. So, so those who have come to Christ have made the right offering and they have confronted sin in Christ since he did it and defeated the oppressor so that they are free now to live in this world as who they are. So, we get down to the, okay, what, what do I do? What's my choice? All right, so, so let's talk about that. Three things I want to mention to you. Okay, yeah, I know you're surprised, you know, a preacher has three things. Well, I think these three summarize it. it, it there may be more, but here you go. First of all, if you want to deal with your daily issues of feeling treated unfairly, unjustly, that sense of shame that you may be, other people have more than you do. Maybe God's showing more favor to others than you. Whatever is going on that is tempting you to be a victim, what do you do? What do you do? And, and it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to start feeling like a victim. I, I feel like a victim. I'm driving down the road doing, my, doing what's right, staying in the right lane, driving the speed limit, doing the right thing, and some guy cuts me off and I have to slam on brake and swerve over the deal. It's like I'm a victim. That's an oppressor out there. He's taking away my stuff, you know. And also, I'd like to have that car that goes that <laughs> Yeah, it can be as simple and stupid as that, or it can be really a, a, a deep matter of, you know, I'm I'm economically oppressed, and or I'm being physically oppressed, abused, I'm being mistreated. Okay, there are people who are, and we all are at some point. Life is as as a way of being tough, there's injustice in it because there, there's sin involved in, in the, the human situation and in the world. So yes, there's none of us have made it through yet without being treated unfairly at some point. Some more unfairly than others, but all have been treated unfairly. Whether it's in your marriage or just being a human or being being uh, in a certain country or having a certain political position or whatever, you we've all been treated unfairly. And every time there's that whisper from the accuser, the oppressor, the liar that says you're a victim and you don't deserve this and you need to fight back. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with this deadly cocktail that the enemy wants us to drink? It's made up of at least three ingredients. There's the magic three again. It's made up of victimization. Well, first of all, I'd say it's, it's made up of ingratitude, victimization, and arrogance. So he wants you to not be grateful for what you have. And the best way not to be grateful is to, 
is to be complaining about what you have or what you don't have. When you complain about what you don't have, there's no way to be grateful for what you have. So, so ingratitude leads to resentment, victimization, and, and resentment leads to arrogance because then you think you're, uh, you don't need anybody else and so you isolate yourself. So, so let, let's talk about it here. First of all, step number one, accept responsibility for where I am. Okay, maybe I didn't put myself here. I know that was true about me and it's true about you. I, I didn't, I didn't choose what family to be born in. I didn't choose my geography. I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose my DNA. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any choice. I just show up. Actually, I showed up eight years after the family thought they were done. So I kind of intruded on the party. So you can imagine how many times a whisperer said to me, you know, you're just, you're just an interloper, you know, you just interrupted everything. And so, so you're not really wanted or needed or useful and uh, you weren't in the plan, you know, so, you know, you can take off on that. But others would look at me and go, yeah, you're, you got white privilege. I mean, you were born into a white family, born into, the, uh, into middle class, uh, you know, you were born in where you could go to college, you know, what about me? I wasn't, that wasn't my deal. So first of all, since we didn't have any choice on that deal, why don't we accept where we are? Well, to do that, you have to say, I believe that there's a God in charge who put me here because he has something for me and something for me to do. So so first of all, I accept responsibility for where I am. I didn't put myself here. I can't take credit for it. And I don't blame myself. I'm just here. I'm here. So, so where am I? You say, well, I'm in a terrible marriage. Okay, I'm here. This is where I am for right now. I accept the responsibility, not for what got me here. I accept responsibility for what I do from here on. I have choices. And I accept responsibility for my choices from this point on, from right here. I can choose to be bitter. I can choose not to be bitter. I can choose to retaliate. I can choose not to retaliate. I can choose to trust God or I can choose not to trust God. I can choose to contribute to the welfare of all of those around me or I can choose to try to punish everybody that I think is wrong. So I accept responsibility for where I am and where we go forward. I am not taking blame nor credit for where I am. Because actually, where I am, a lot of people had contributions to get me there. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I need to accept the revelation of who I am. We, we get so confused by our feelings and by our circumstances. Who am I? Am I a minority? Am I a victim? Am I, am I worthless? Am, am I unknown? Am I unimportant? Who am I? Or am I really important, you know, because of the things that I had no control of that gave me privilege? No, neither. Who are you? Well, first of all, let's start with the basics. You're a human. What does that mean? That means you're a creature, not the creator. It means God created you to respond to him. He is greater than. He is the, he's the source of everything. You're the reflector of light, not the source of light. You're the partner with God and not the creator. 
You have limitations because you are human. You don't know everything and you will never know everything. You, you can't be everywhere at one time, though you'd like to be. You, you can't uh, have power over everything. Only God has that. So we accept the fact that I'm human, that I have limitations, that I am, that I'm a fallen human. I have weaknesses. I have sin. I have these, I accept the fact that I'm human. Secondly, I am a worshiper. You're made to be a worshiper. You're, you're, you're made to respond to, to someone greater. That's who you are. That's, except that's who you are. God made you as a worshiper. And what does a worshiper do? The very first thing a worshiper does is give thanks. He's thankful. He's thankful that he is, he, he's been created. He's thankful that he has someone greater. He's thankful that someone loves him. He's thankful that there's, there's someone in charge that, that some, someone cares for him. So you're thankful. And he looks around and he's thankful for all he has. It's like, well, I don't have as much as other people. But you're thankful for what you do have. That's a true worshiper. If you're, if you're, not, if you're focused on what you don't have, you're not thankful for what you do have, and you're opening the door for the victimizer to come in, the oppressor to come in. So I am human, I'm a worshiper, and I'm a member of God's family. That's who you are if you're a Christian. You're a member of God's family. You're a member of God's created family anyway, just being human. But if you're a Christian, you're a member of God's family. That means your sins have been forgiven. Your rejection has been taken by Jesus. You're now accepted in him. You are uh, his son. You joint heir with him. You're his partner on, on the earth. You uh, have been restored to be the human that God created Adam and Eve to be, which means to rule over his creation and help develop it for the good of everyone. Uh, so, so you're a member of God's family. That also means you're a member. It doesn't mean you're the whole body. It means that you have specific gifts and specific distinctiveness that add to, but you need everybody else. You need every other member of the body. Otherwise, the body's not going to work. Uh, I, my, without a leg, uh, the rest of my body is at a disadvantage. Without an eye, my body's at a disadvantage. Without, without an ear. So I, I can't go on healthily if I am disregarding and disrespecting the other members of, uh, of the body. Taking it on the macro level, if I disrespect the other humans, the other, the other people who are born in other places, even people who have different ideologies than I do, they also have a contribution in society and in God's world, even though they may not be believers in Christ. I see them as significant. I see them as God's creations and they have something to give and I can learn something from them. So I'm a member of humanity and then I'm a member of the body of Christ as well. Now, if I got those out of order for you, I'm, 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 just go back and think about it, listen to it. Uh, you really get the right view as a believer because you see that God has restored you as a human. Then as restoration as a human, you can understand, hey, not only are the Christians important, but the whole human race is important. God is doing something in every person and in every group of people. So, so I accept the revelation of who I am. Thirdly, I accept the ramifications of my design and redemption. Okay, now stay with me. 
Hang with me. You see, God designed us to be decision makers. He designed us to make decisions in as his representative on the earth that would discover and develop what he had placed in the earth. So we are to make creation better. We are to take the soil of the Garden of Eden and turn it into fruitful garden. We are to take the minerals and the all the stuff, all the knowledge that we can see. We're to take it and develop it for the benefit of the whole. So we were designed to be decision makers that matter. In other words, every decision we make matters. One of the things the devil will tell you is that it doesn't really matter. Everything's random, doesn't matter. You've been overlooked, you've been mishandled. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter what you do. Everything you do matters. This is what gives meaning to life, to know that every decision you make matters. You say it doesn't matter whether I use one toothpaste or another. It does. Now, you may not see it. But you know the butterfly effect that we've talked about in science. A butterfly flapping his wings in Asia affects the weather here. You say not much. Well, not much, but some. So if we accept the ramifications of who we are, just as humans, that we're decision makers, then the logical ramification of that is, if you're a decision maker, then make good decisions. Uh, the first decision we ought to make is, let's not make any decisions that'll make things worse. You know, my doctor friends tell me that the first thing that you try to do as a doctor is try not to hurt. And if you can stop from hurting and start healing, then you're making progress. What if we just said, I wake up every morning and I'm not going to make anything worse. I'm not going to make the relationship with my spouse worse or my kids worse, my neighbors. I'm not going to make relationships. I'm not going to make things worse. I'm going to pick up trash when I see it. I'm not going to make it worse. I'm not just going to complain about it. I'm going to try to make every, let every decision have a positive influence. Well, that's... That's a recognizing your design. And then when you recognize that added to your design is the redemption that lets you now operate as Adam and Eve could operate and as Jesus operated. And that is, I not only can make those little decisions in life to make life on earth better, but I actually am God's partner and a reflector of his light and I am, into, I am to engage darkness, not just run from it, or not never to run from it, but because I have been designed by him and now redeemed by him and given his mission, I am to take my light and go be who I am as his representative wherever there's darkness. And uh, I, I'm not sitting around waiting to die and go to heaven. I'm not waiting for Jesus to come back and snatch me out of here so, so he could take some angels and immortal saints and do what we didn't do. No, I am here to engage darkness with the light that I have from him. So I, I have now a mission in life. I have not only can I make things better by picking up trash in the yard, I can make things better by telling the truth 
by proclaiming the gospel, by demonstrating love, by showing kindness where others are showing hostility, by speaking a blessing instead of whining and cursing, by, by smiling instead of frowning, and by giving thanks instead of focusing on what I don't have. So as I do those things, I'm pushing back darkness. You say, not much, even a little bit. What if a bunch of us pushed it back a little bit? At the end of the day, it would be pushed back, wouldn't it? At the end of the week, it'd be pushed back more, wouldn't it? At the end of our lifetimes, it might be pushed back a good piece. And so, so that's our privilege and that's our responsibility as, as, uh, as redeemed people in Christ. So in Christ, I can now, where maybe Cain had the problems like, okay, you tell me to do good, but in my heart, I'm really angry with Abel and with you and his heart was messed up. But now in Christ, since Christ has done for us what we couldn't do, he made the sacrifice with a pure heart and with his sacrifice, he gave the right offering that brought God's acceptance upon all who are in him. Since we already have that, God is now smiling at us and saying to us, as he said to Abel, I accept your sacrifice. I accept what Jesus did in your behalf. And so with that, in addition to, to doing that for us, he gave us his very life. So now we share his life so that we can obey things like in the scripture that says, put to death the deeds of the body. So when, when the tempter comes to say you're a victim and you, uh, you've been treated unfairly and you don't have everything everybody else has, when he comes, you can say no to that. You can say no in the name of Jesus because you have his life in you. You have the mind of Christ in you. So you can put to death the deeds of the body and you can control, you can confront your personal tempter while you are spreading the light around. Let me see how I, how I wrote down here. I wanted to conclude this whole thing. To, to put some gravity into the situation. It's not a trivial thing to just read Cain's story and go, oh, yeah, that was Cain and Abel, and that did bring a lot of trouble in the world. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we need to take seriously this. This, this is a story for our time. This, this is something we need to deal with. You cannot allow Cain's folly to continue unabated and expect there to be any flourishing in the world or in your life. If, as a society, we choose to keep on dividing up over who the victims are and who the oppressors are, it will lead to destruction. It will be revolution. There is hostility. There is disrespect of, of individuals. It'll get, it'll get worse and worse. And destruction takes place. If we take it seriously, we Christians, we believers, can make the decision to say no more victimization, none for me. I'm going to live out the gospel. I have been accepted in the beloved. The sacrifice, the offering that God demands has been paid. I'm accepted in him. I have been received as his son. I am valuable because he put his value on me. I am his partner on the earth. Therefore, I am going to make decisions every day of my life that try to help and not hurt, bless and not curse, 
build up and not tear down. I'm going to be grateful instead of resentful. You can do that because of the truth of the gospel. This is who you are. This is what God has done. It is a serious thing. Uh, people are begging today for civility. They're begging, begging for unity. It's not going to happen just because a bunch of people get together and try to agree on some policy. It's going to happen at the level of the heart where the offering has been made. And so I commend to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I warn you that if we don't deal with this, destruction lies in our path, in our own individual lives and in our culture. So it's a big issue. And the big issue is confronted by a big gospel and the big truth of what God has done in our behalf so that we actually can be the people of God on earth who enjoy him as much as he enjoys himself. So life is meaningful and you can enjoy its meaning. Well, thanks for being with me. Let's pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and confronted the evil one in our behalf, who made the ultimate sacrifice and offering that you have accepted for eternity, that has made it possible for us to live without fear of giving the wrong offering. Thank you for sending Jesus as our, as our substitute. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life. Thank you that you refused to be the victim when you were being oppressed. Thank you that you are today the Lord and that you have not only given us our justification, you have infused us with your own life. Thank you for making us reflectors of life. So we are grateful to you and we submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've enjoyed being with you. Until next month, this is Dudley Hall with Kerygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.